Chapter 1, Part 3 of The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Teresa Downey. Chapter 1, Part 3 It is to be regretted that the letters referred to by Miss Willis, and indeed nearly all of Elizabeth's family letters, written before she left her mother's roof, have disappeared. But the following recollections by Mrs. M. C. H. Clark of Portland will in part supply their place and serve to fill up the outline, already given, of the first twenty years of her life. In the volume of sketches entitled Only a Dandelion, you will find, in the story of Anna and Emily, some very pleasing incidents relating to the early life of dear Elizabeth. Anna was Lizzie Wood, her earliest playmate and friend. Miss Wood was a sweet girl, the only sister of Dr. William Wood of Portland. She died at an early age. Emily was Mrs. Prentice herself. I remember her once telling me about the visit at Aunt W.'s, and believe that nearly all the details of the story are founded in fact. It is her own picture of herself as a little girl, drawn to the life. Several traits of the character of Emily, as given in the sketch, are on this account worthy of special note one is her very intense desire not only to be loved but to be loved alone or much more than any one else and to be assured of it over and over again when anna returned from her journey she brought the same presents to susan morton as to emily on discovering this fact emily was greatly distressed i thought you would be so glad to get all these things said anna and so i am said emily I only want you to love me better than any other little girl, because I love you better. Well, and so I do, returned Anna. I love you ten times as well as I love Susan Morton. This satisfied Emily, and for many days her restless little heart was as quiet and happy as a lamb's. Another trait is brought out in the incident that occurred on her returning home from Anna's. She had written, or rather scratched, the word Anna, over one whole side of her room, while odd lines of what purported to be poetry filled the other. But this was not all. Her sister produced the beautiful Bible which had been given Emily by her Aunt Lucy on her seventh birthday, and showed her father how all its blank leaves were covered with Anna's. Her father took the book with reverence, and Emily understood and felt the seriousness with which he examined her idle scrawls. It was a look that would have risen up before her and made her stay her hand, should she ever again in her life long have been tempted thus to misuse the word of God, just as the angel stood before Balaam in the narrow path he was struggling to push through. But Emily never again was thus tempted, and ever after her Bible was sacredly kept free from blot or wrinkle or any such thing. Her father now took her with him to his study and gave her a great many pieces of paper, some large and some small, on which he told her with a smile she could write Anna's name to her heart's content. Emily felt very grateful. This little kindness on her father's part did her more good than a month's lecture could have done, and made her resolve never to do anything that could possibly grieve him again. She went away to her own little baby house, and wrote on one of the bits of paper some verses in which she said she had the best father in the world. When they were done, she read them over once or twice, and admired them exceedingly, after which, with a very mysterious air, 
she went and threw them in the kitchen fire. This incident, so prettily related, illustrates the intensity of her friendships, shows that she had begun to write verses when a mere child, and gives a very pleasant glimpse of her father and of her devotion to him. My intimate acquaintance with her commenced in 1832, when we were members of Miss Tyler's Sabbath school class. Miss Tyler was a daughter of Rev. Dr. Bennett Tyler, her father's successor. She was greatly pleased when I told her I was going to attend her sister's school, which was opened in the spring of 1833, on the corner of Middle and Lime Streets. My seat was next to hers, and we were placed in the same classes. Our homes were near each other on Franklin Street, and we always walked back and forth together. She was at this time a prolific writer of notes. Sometimes she would meet me on Monday morning, with not less than four written since we had parted on Saturday afternoon. She used to complain now and then that I wrote her only one to four or five of hers to me. In the pleasant summer afternoons, we loved to take long walks together. One was down by the shore behind the eastern promenade. Here we would find a sheltered nook, and with our backs to the world and our faces toward the islands and the ocean, would sit in rapt enjoyment of the scene, speaking scarcely a word, until one or the other exclaimed with a long-drawn sigh, Well, it's time for us to go home. Another of our places of resort was the old cemetery on Congress Street, which in those days was very retired. Our favorite spot here was the summit of a tomb which stood on the highest point in the grounds. It was the old style of tomb, a broad marble slab supported by six small stone pillars on a stone foundation and surrounded by two steps raised above the soil. It was a very quiet retreat. We could hear the distant hum of the city, and at the same time enjoy a view of the water and shipping, as the land sloped down toward the harbor. I remember well that one dark spring day, as we sat there cuddled up under the broad slab, Lizzie gave me an account of a book she had just been reading. It was the memoir of Miss Susanna Anthony, by old Dr. Hopkins of Newport. She told me what a good and holy woman Miss Anthony was, how much she suffered, and how beautifully she bore her sufferings. My sympathy was strongly excited, and I exclaimed, I do not see how it is right for God, who can control all things, to permit such suffering. Lizzie replied very sweetly, Well, Carrie, we can't understand it, but I have been thinking that this might be God's way of preparing His children for a very high degree of service on earth, or happiness in heaven. I was deeply impressed with this remark, and somehow it seemed to stand by me, and I think it was a cornerstone of her faith. This summer, that of 1833, her mother fitted up for her exclusive use a small room called the Blue Room, where she had all her books and treasures, among them a writing desk which had been her father's. Here all her leisure hours were spent. It was my privilege to be admitted to this sanctuary, and many pleasant hours we passed together there. I think Elizabeth was always religious. She knew a great deal, then, about the Bible, and often talked to me of divine things. She seemed to feel a deep interest in my spiritual welfare. She loved to share with me her favorite books. To her I was indebted for my acquaintance with George Herbert and with Wordsworth. She induced me to read Owen on the 133rd Psalm and Flavel's Fountain of Life. In 1834 we both began to attend 
the Free Street Seminary, of which Rev. Solomon Adams was then principal. Her sister had become assistant teacher with him. Our desks adjoined each other, and we were together a great deal. She was an admirable scholar, very studious, prompt, and ready at recitation. Her influence and example, added to her friendship and sympathy, were invaluable to me at this period. One day, about this time, she told me of her engagement with Mr. Willis to become a contributor to The Youth's Companion. This paper was one of the first, if not the first, of its class published in this century, and had a wide circulation among the children throughout New England. Most of the pieces in Only a Dandelion first appeared, I think, in The Youth's Companion, among the rest several in verse. They are written in a sprightly style, are full of bright fancies as well of sound feeling and excellent sense, and foretoken plainly the author of the Susie books. In 1835 Lizzie went to Ipswich and spent the summer in school there. It was then under the care of Miss Grant, and was the most noted institution of its kind in New England. A year or two later Mr. N. P. Willis returned from Europe, and with his English bride made a short visit at Mrs. Payson's. Miss Payson talked with him of Elizabeth's taste for writing poetry, and showed him some of her pieces. He praised and encouraged her warmly, and this was, I think, one of the influences that strengthened her in the purpose to become an author. Upon my telling her one day how much I liked a certain Sunday-school book I had just read, she smilingly asked, What would you think if some day I should write a book as good as that? I saw a good deal of her home life at this time. It was full of filial and sisterly love and devotion. Amidst the household cares by which her mother was often weighed down and worried, she was an ever-near friend and sympathizer. To her brothers, too, she endeared herself exceedingly by her helpful, cheery ways and the strong vein of fun and mirthfulness which ran through her daily life. In the spring of 1837 Mrs. Payson sold her house on Franklin Street and rented one in the upper part of the city. Lizzie used to call it the pumpkin house, because it was old and ugly. But its situation and the opportunity to indulge her rural tastes made amends for all of its defects. In a letter to her friend, Mrs. E. T. of Brooklyn, New York, dated May 21, 1837, she thus refers to it. Since your last letter arrived, we have left our pleasant home for an old yellow one above John Neal's. Now don't imagine it to be a delicate straw color, neither the smiling hue of the early dandelion. No, it once shone forth in all the glories of a deep pumpkin. But time's effacing fingers have sadly marred its beauty. Mr. Neal's Aunt Ruth, a quiet old Quakeress, occupies a part of it, and we Paisons bestow ourselves in the remainder. This comes to you from its great garret. Here I sit every night till after dark, as merry as a grig. The mind is its own place. With all the inconveniences of the house, I would not exchange it at present for any other in the city. The situation is perfectly delightful. Casco Bay and part of Deering's Oaks lie in full view. The oaks are within a few minutes' walks. Back Cove is seen beyond, and rising far above the blue white mountains. The arsenal stares us in the face if we look out the end windows, and the Westbrook meeting-house is nearer than Mr. Vale's by a quarter of a mile. I never believed that there was anything half so fine in this region. I think nothing of walking anywhere now. One day, after various domestic duties, I worked in my tiny garden four hours, and in the afternoon a party of girls came up for me to go with them to Bramhall's Hill. 
We walked from three till half-past six, came back, and ate a hasty, with some of us a furious supper, and then all paraded down to second parish to singing school. I expect to live out in the air most of the summer. I mean to have as pleasant a one as possible, because we shall never live so near the oaks and any other pretty places another summer. If you were not so timid, I would wish you here to run about with me. But who ever heard of E.T. running? Now, Ellen, I never was meant to be dignified, and sometimes, yea, often, I run, skip, hop, and once I did climb over a fence. Very unladylike, I know, but I am not a lady. In the fall of 1837, Mrs. Payson moved again. The incident deserves mention, as it brought Lizzie into daily intercourse with the Reverend Mr. French and his wife. Mr. French was rector of the Episcopal Church in Portland, and afterwards professor and chaplain at West Point. He was a man of fine literary culture, and Mrs. French was a very attractive woman. In a letter dated, Night Before Thanksgiving, in address to the early friend already mentioned, Lizzie refers to this removal, and also gives a glimpse of her active home life. I have been busy all day, and am so tired I can scarcely hold a pen. Amidst the beating of eggs, the pounding of spices, the furious rolling of pastry of all degrees of shortness, the filling of pies with pumpkins, mincemeat, apples, and the like, the stoning of raisins and washings of currants, the beating and baking of cake and all the other ings, in all of which I have had my share, thoughts of your ladyship have somehow squeezed themselves in. We have really bidden adieu to Pumpkin Place, as Mrs. Willis calls it, and established ourselves in a house formerly occupied by old Parson Smith, and very snug and comfortable we are, I assure you. In the midst of our moving, after I had packed and stowed and lifted and been elbowed by all the sharp corners in the house, and had my hands all torn and scratched, I spied the new knickerbocker mid a heap of rubbish, and was tempted to peep into it. Lo, and behold! The first thing that met my eye was the lament of the last peach. I didn't care to read more, and forthwith returning to fitting of carpets and arranging tables and chairs and bureaus, but all the while meditating how I should be revenged upon you, as to so-and-so's request, I am sorry to answer nay, for I feel it would be the greatest presumption of me to think of writing for a magazine like that. I do not wish to publish anything anywhere though it would be quite as wise as to entrust my scraps to your care. My mother often urges me to send little things, which she happens to fancy, to this and that periodical. Without her interference, nothing of mine would ever have found its way into print. But mamma's look with rose-colored spectacles on the actions and performances of their offspring. Have you laughed over the Pickwick papers? We have almost laughed ourselves to death over them. I have not seen Lizzie D. for a long time, but here she is getting along rapidly. If I could go to school two years more, I should be glad. But of course that is out of the question. It is easier for you to write often than it is for me. You have not three tearing, growing brothers to mend and make for. I am become quite expert in the arts of patching and darning. I am going to get some pies and cakes and raisins and other goodies to send to our girl's sick brother. If I had not so dear and happy a home, I should envy you yours. You say you do not remember whether I love music or not. I love it extravagantly, sometimes, but have not the knowledge to enjoy scientific performances. The simple melody of a single voice is my delight. Mrs. French, the Episcopal's minister, 
who is a great friend of ours and lives next door, so near that she and sister talk together out of their windows, has a baby two days old with black curly hair and black eyes, and I shall have a nice time with it this winter. Do you love babies? The question with which this letter closes suggests one of Lizzie's most striking and loveliest traits. She had a perfect passion for babies, and reveled in tending, kissing, and playing with them. Here are some pretty lines in one of her girlish contributions to the youth's companion, which express her feelings about them. What are little babies for? Say, say, say. Are they good for nothing things? Nay, nay, nay. Can they speak a single word? Say, say, say. Can they help their mothers so? Nay, nay, nay. Can they walk upon their feet? Say, say, say. Can they even hold themselves? Nay, nay, nay. What are little babies for? Say, say, say. Are they made for us to love? Yay, yay, yay! In the fall of 1838, Mrs. Payson purchased a house in Cumberland Street, which continued to be her residence until the family was broken up. You remember the charming little room Lizzie had fitted up over the hall in this house? How nicely she kept it, and how happy she was in it? One of the windows looked out, on a little flower garden, and at the close of the long summer days the sunset could be enjoyed from the west window. She had had some fine books given her, which, added to the previous store, made a somewhat rare collection for a young girl in those days. About this time, having been relieved of her part of domestic service by the coming into the family of a young relative whose devotion to her was unbounded, she opened in the house a school for little girls. It consisted at first of perhaps eight or ten, but their number increased until the house could scarcely hold them. She was a born teacher, and her young pupils fairly idolized her. In this year, too, she took a class in the Sabbath school, composed of nearly the same group who surrounded her on weekdays, and they remained under her care as long as she lived in Portland. The Reverend Mr. Vale, having retired from the pastorate of the second parish in the autumn of 1837, Cyrus Hamlin, just from the theological seminary at Bangor, became the stated supply for some months. His preaching attracted the young people, and during the winter and spring there was much interest in all the congregational churches. Following the example of other pastors, Mr. Hamlin invited persons seriously disposed to meet him for religious conversation. Elizabeth besought me, with all possible earnestness and affection, to go to Mr. Hamlin's meeting. One day she came to see me a short time before the hour, saying that I was ever on her mind and in her prayers, and that she had talked with Mr. Hamlin about me, nor would she leave me until I had promised to attend the meeting. I did so, and from that time we were united in the strong bonds of Christian love and sympathy. What a spiritual helper she was to me in those days! What precious notes I was all the time receiving from her! The memory of her tender, faithful friendship is still fresh and delightful after the lapse of more than forty years. In the summer of 1838, the Reverend Jonathan B. Condit, D.D., was called from his chair in Amherst College and installed pastor of our church. He was a man of very graceful and winning manners, and wonderfully magnetic. He at once became almost an object of worship with the enthusiastic young people. The services of the Sabbath and the weekly meetings were delightful. 
the young ladies had a praying circle which met every Saturday afternoon, full of life and sunshine. Indeed, the exclusive interest of the season was religious. Our reading and conversation were religious. Well nigh the sole subject of thought was learning something new of our Saviour in his blessed service. All Lizzie's friends, and several of her own family, were rejoicing in hope, and she herself was radiant with joy. For a little while it seemed almost as if the shadows in the Christian path had fled away, and the crosses vanished out of sight. The winter and spring of 1840 witnessed another period of general religious interest in Portland. Large numbers were gathered into the churches. Lizzie was greatly impressed by the work. Her own Christian life was deepened and widened, and she was blessed in guiding several members of her beloved Sunday school class to the Saviour, and was thus prepared also for the sharp trial awaiting her in the autumn of the same year, when she left her home and mother for a long absence in Richmond. From her earliest years she was in the habit of keeping a journal, and she must have filled several volumes. I wonder that she did not preserve them as mementos of her childhood and youth. Perhaps, because her afterlife was so happy, that she never needed to refer to such reminiscences of days gone by. I have thus given you, in a very informal manner, some recollections of her earlier years. I have been astonished to find how vividly I recalled scenes, events, and conversations so long past. I was startled and shocked when the news came of her sudden death. But I cannot feel that she was called to her rest too soon. She seemed to me singularly happy in all the relations of life, and then, as an author, hers was an exceptional case of full appreciation and success. I have ever regarded her as favored among women, blessed in doing her master's will and testifying for him, blessed in her home, in her friends, and in her work, and blessed in her death. Portland, December 31st, 1878. End of Chapter 1, Part 3 Recording by Teresa Downey